Hello and welcome to Just Plain Sense, the Equality and Diversity Podcast. I'm Christine Burns. One thing that's very clear to me in my work around diverse groups of people and their experiences is that the things that mark their difference, be that gender, race or disability, etc., are a very strong part of people's identities. Although we always emphasise the need to look at the whole person and all of their experiences, it's inevitable that if you're a black lesbian woman, say, then those elements will play a significant part in your personal identity, as well as the way that others see you. Yet there are other dimensions to identity too. Employers identify us as having positions within an organisation. We have a place in our families. The authorities are keen to identify us through unique physical characteristics like our fingerprints and by issuing documents that identify us. We also signal aspects of our identity by the things we choose to wear, where we live, the things we read. The list is endless. Each of us has many representations of who we are, whether they are things we choose for ourselves or those created by enterprises in the state. The Welcome Collection in London is running a nine-month season of activity called the Identity Project, examining identity through the lens of scientists, artists, actors and other individuals who have in some way defined or challenged the boundaries. I've agreed to lead a tour of the exhibition this coming February during LGBT History Month. Before then, however, I've come to meet with the exhibition organisers to find out more. With me is Jane Holmes, the Exhibition Project Manager, Jane, welcome to Just Plain Sense. I wondered, first of all, if you could explain a little bit about the Welcome Collection. I gather you've only been open for a couple of years? Yes, uh, we were originally established by Sir Henry Welcome, um, who was a Victorian philanthropist. Um, He built this building in the 1930s, but unfortunately um, he died before it could be uh, completed as a museum. It did, during his lifetime, have a small museum contained in it, but it was really for personal reference and also by appointment. And one of his dreams was that a full museum would be established. Um, That was realised in 2007 when we opened with the Heart Exhibition. And it's it's a very fine building. I noticed as I was crossing Euston Road, it's, it's a beautiful portico, isn't it? It is. It's a wonderful stone-clad building. Um, we're right on the corner, so we've, uh, we're in a wonderful axis between the universities um, of London and uh, Oxford Street. And um, it's basically um, a very, very diverse area. Next door, we actually have our office building, which is the Gibbs Building, which is a uh, Michael Hopkins uh, architecturally designed building that um, has won some awards as well. So we're very, very lucky. Okay, the, the exhibition we are talking about is called Eight Rooms, Nine Lives. What's the story behind that? Well, basically, everybody has a strong sense of their own personal identity, their own sense of self. How far that's developed from influences and from aspects of our culture on how far it's developed from our own um, personal experiences or from our own um, cosmetic makeup, um, we're not sure. And one of the ideas was by having um, personalities in the exhibition, we could um, really get across quite complex themes and ideas. 
Okay, well, we're standing in the, the, the reception area of the exhibition, just, just off the reception of the, uh, the building. Shall we, shall we go and have a look at the first uh, room? Yes, let's head towards the peeps room. The reason that uh, this room is based on Samuel Pepys is because he originally wrote his diary in code. Since he wrote the, the code version, each individual version that's been published for subsequent generations has been subtly altered and edited to appeal more to that generation, which completely alters your view of Pepys because you start seeing different nuances in his character that are geared towards the society that that particular publication is aimed at. So is this other people imposing their view of Pepys on on the translation or is that him changing his representation of himself? It's other people imposing their view with the subtle editing process. Um, We also have some wonderful suffragette diaries in this exhibition, um, which I'd like to... Yeah, let's go and have a look at those. I'd like to show you. These diaries I find remarkable because they're very, they're very warm. Um, they also tell you an enormous amount about the passion for women's suffrage, but also a lot about the sheer human fear that many of these women felt of being in prison. They're all written from Holloway Prison. They're by two suffragettes, Mary Ann Rowell, and Kate Glidden, who obviously come from very, very different backgrounds because um, Mary Ann Rowell's grammar is very different to Kate Glidden's. And when they were um, taken into the prison, they were made to uh, take all their possessions away. They were made to take their hair down and to put on the prison uniform. And what I love about the Mary Ann Rowell entries that they take her pawn tickets away and she's particularly angry at this. <laughs> um, Kate Glidden uh, talks more of cultural pursuits. Uh, she painted, she, she wrote. Um, and in fact, these two uh, artworks you see here were painted by Kate Glidden in a bid to really keep herself sane during the time she was imprisoned. She felt that it was a sort of emotional outlet and she was actually advised by the prison doctor to continue um, painting to uh, try and get over the experience of being in prison. The women were also um, very, very aware that they were living through changing times. There are several references in the diaries to these being particularly exciting times for women and times when they really felt that they could make a difference. And um, what I particularly like about them as well is you actually get, you go on a journey with them, especially with the Mary Ann Rowe diary, because she talks about entering the prison, about feeling the social stigma of being taken away by the police, of being stripped, and then she talks about the sheer horror of being reduced to a number, being classified. There's, there's something quite remarkable about looking at these diaries, because they're, they're not diaries in the sense of a sort of day-to-day diary you would buy in a shop these are these are just notebooks which they've they've written a journal in 
Yes, they basically whatever paper they could get at the time, whatever they could, they had to hand. Um, so this, for instance, is a one penny notebook that Mary Ann Rowe was written in, and uh, the Kate Glidden um, is just uh, sheets of lined paper from an exercise book. Um, and what's wonderful about Kate Glidden's work is not only do you get a real sense of actually being there because it's accompanied by the drawings. She talks about her horror of being reduced to number two where the prison block had 11 cells and uh, the prisoners who weren't suffragettes were called cleaners and they would actually wait on the suffragettes and they were the ones who would come round and give them their gruel. And in Kate Glidden's diary, she talks about actually missing out on being fed because um, the doctor had forgot to tell the cleaners that she needed gruel, so she goes for another evening without being fed. And they're absolutely amazing because you sense the struggle, you sense the horror, the hunger, the fear... The, the stigma, you know, Kate Glidden's parents ask her to give up her fight for suffrage, yet it makes them more determined. And towards the end of these diaries, you also get a tremendous sense of hope because they basically talk about how they've bonded with the other women in the prison and how they've actually forged these tremendous links and really met people outside of their social sphere as well that they wouldn't otherwise have met and how their lives have been enriched by that. OK, shall we move on? Yes, yes. Um, well, this is the Claude Cahoon room, and Claude Cahoon was born Lucia Schwab and uh, she lived on Jersey um, in the 1930s. She moved there in 1937 with her partner and basically it was during the Nazi occupation so they distributed uh, anti-Nazi propaganda and were imprisoned and sentenced to death but thankfully the bailiff of Jersey intervened because he felt that if the death sentence was carried out it would cause um, disquiet amongst a population who would become very frightened at the occupation even further still but what's really interesting about Claude Cahoon is that she played with the idea of her femininity she played with the and and really reacted against that she cut her hair short she wore trousers and throughout her life until her death in 1954 she basically played with the idea of her own sense of self often depicting herself in national costume and in uh, religious poses. There's um, an image over there where she's seen as Buddha, um, often playing with the idea of what women's role in society should be through their femininity and really what was identity, you know, through cultural um, differences and through religious differences. It's interesting that more or less since the 60s we've taken it for granted that each generation gets to play with its, with its identity and that's something we can freely do these days. But to be in that position in the, in the 30s and 40s was very different then. Absolutely. I mean, it was an incredibly brave thing to, to do then and it was very, very different. And um, she left this amazing body of work where you actually again go on this journey with her you see her playing with her sense of self and in a way establishing her own identity through these photographs 
There's some more correspondence here as well, is there? Yes, this is uh, some of the propaganda she distributed um, and um, the letter from the bailiff um, of Jersey asking for her not to be shot. This is her identity card, um, which is very, very interesting because it's probably the truest image of her in the exhibition. She looks a bit of a rebel in her photograph, doesn't she? She does, doesn't she? She looks wonderful. I love this one from 1945 as well, where she's, uh, she's quite elderly, but she's still biting on the, on the swastika there that was given to her by her guard, Otto, and she's holding the badge between her teeth. And the, uh, the national costume here that she's wearing. And uh, I think that they're incredibly strong photos. And what I find amazing is you look at this image from 1920... And it could be something from the punk era. It's mm. so advanced. It's so ahead that, of its time. That first one from 1914 says very Sandra Rhodes to me. It does, doesn't it? I think it's the hair sprayed mm. out there. But um, I just think they're absolutely extraordinary photos ahead of their time. Uh, this room concentrates on the work of Franz Joseph Gall, who basically was... Um, a discoverer of phrenology and uh, he patented this idea that the brain was split into organs and each organ basically denoted a certain element of your personality or your moral character um, and your makeup as a human being but he had somewhat of an advantage because he used to um, study the uh, heads and life masks of famous individuals. So people like Larsenet, the famous French criminal, um, he would, and Raphael, the painter, and he would say, ah, oh, their artistic ability comes from having a rather enlarged cranium. <laughs> and um, he was discredited by quite a few people in his lifetime and he eventually settled in Paris. But there's an amazing account in this journal here by Henry Reeve of Gaul arriving for a lecture, and it's almost like a superstar, you know, they're all waiting in anticipation for him to come in, and they're all waiting for a mad professor with, you know, sort of the slightly... Um, slightly fuzzy hair and slightly uh, wild manners and he comes in and he's terribly charming and rather good looking and they're all slightly blown over by him and they all think he's rather wonderful so um, this is a great piece and then you've got the wonderful um, different uh, phrenological um, skulls here from the collection of the Science Museum. So if I can just describe this, this is like a, a drawer or a box with lots of little um head and shoulders figures in about what a couple of inches high yes they were used as a teaching tool and each one of them um, demonstrates a different aspect of um, Gaul's theory of 27 the 27 areas of the brains or organs that uh, held different uh, virtues and that's where the phrenological heads developed with the divisions showing intuitiveness showing humour showing um, ability to um, remember moral intellect and because uh, what happened was Gaul realised as a child that um, one of his classmates had 
very protruding eyes but an amazing verbal memory and basically he recognised this same trait in someone when he was at university so he thought if they share the same characteristics and they both have this amazing verbal memory there must be a link. (laughs) Although phonology was discredited as a science the idea of um, areas of the brain being localised for specific functions is actually true today and we know that through fMRI scans where you can see the changes in brain activity as people are reading or they're actually carrying out a task. We're in the April Ashley room uh, which deals with gender reassignment issues and with um, sexuality issues and um, April Ashley was born George Jameson in Liverpool and she had a sex change operation in Morocco in 1960. She became an international Vogue model um, and unfortunately her career as a model uh, came to an end when she was outed um, as originally um, being a man by uh, the newspapers and that had an enormous psychological effect and emotional effect and her career literally ended overnight. And there's some film clips here of her being interviewed by Michael Parkinson. Yes, she was interviewed by Michael Parkinson and Russell Harty um, because uh, basically there was talk at one point of a film of her life um, and she did write a book and she talks um, in both of these interviews about coming to terms with um, her sexuality but also knowing that it was set from a very young age. She talks about being as young as five or six and realising that she was a girl. Mm. She's, she's very beautiful in both of these interviews, isn't she? She is, and she's still absolutely stunning today. Um, she came to the opening of the exhibition, and uh, she's tremendously glamorous. So if we just move on then, is the Identity Project just about this exhibition? No, um, it's a series of wider um, events and performances to um, to coincide with our notion of identity, how much is nature, how much is nurture. When this exhibition closes in April, um, it closes on the 6th of April, we have a performance by the singer-songwriter Billy Bragg. Um, there are going to be 19 performances of a play called Pressure Drop, Um, And this whole space will transform into a theatre for those 19 performances, which, again, will look at issues of growing up in East London um, from a certain background and really being propelled into a different lifestyle. So we're trying to look at issues from the point of view of sexual, from the point of view of psychological, emotional and also um, we have a series of um, seminars and events that look at non-European identities so identities in China and Caribbean identities and um, basically looking at what actually makes you who you are. One thing you can say about identity is it's something that we're all interested in. Absolutely, it's something that um, everybody 
is influenced by what's around them. Some elements of your character are fixed, some elements change continually as time wears on, and although we know to some extent our genes play a role, we're also not certain how much of that is external. In fact, here is um, a sexual identity chart, actually, that looks at the effect of chromosomes and hormones and external influences on making up people's sexuality during adolescence. And I think that when you look at the way we're classified today as a group of people as well, we're moving in a society where, yet again, we're being classified as a pin number, as a, as um, you know, a sort of passport, uh, not as a as, as a number and not as an individual anymore. Yes, there's a, there's a real tension between the way we define ourselves and the way the state defines us. Absolutely, and in fact, that tension comes out very fully in the Alec Jeffries room. Shall we just go and have a quick look at that? Sure. Sir Alec Jeffries is the pioneer of DNA profiling. It was a technique he discovered in 1984 and basically um, it's entered widespread use in the um, world of of criminal identification. Um, He realised that he could separate out aspects of DNA and by grouping together the characteristics of everybody's DNA from various samples that were similar, he realised that there were aspects that were so unique to you that it could absolutely identify you. And in fact, this came very much to the uh, fore in a murder case in Leicester. Uh, It was the double murder of two teenagers and uh, Alec Jeffries works at the University of Leicester in their um, Department of Genetics And he wrote to the Home Office and said, the research that I'm doing at the moment I think could be of help. And um, that was the first time that that evidence was used in a court of law. Um, One of the aspects of Alec Jeffrey's work was to look at um, DNA profiling in genealogy. And if we just walk Mm. round, I can explain in in a bit more detail... Alec Jeffries took the names of three Yorkshire families which had different derivatives. He basically chose the Revis family, which comes from an activity. The name Revis comes from an act- the activity of basket weaving. He chose um, the Attenboroughs, uh, Richard and David Attenborough, the um, famous naturalist and his uh, brother, the famous actor, um, because their name derives from Attenborough, which is a place name in Yorkshire. Then he also chose his own name, Jeffreys, which derives from son of. So son of Jeffrey becomes Jeffreys. The reason he decided to uh, trace his own name was basically he wanted to see if he was related to the Judge Jeffreys, the famous hanging mm-hmm. judge. Stephen Jeffreys, um, who is depicted there, is actually um, a a descendant of George Jeffries, and Alec Jeffries knew this, so he took an element of his DNA and he matched it against Stephen Jeffries and produced what's called a haplo map, which is in effect a, a DNA family tree. And you can see from this that they are poles apart, and it proves mm. that Alec Jeffries is not a descendant of Judge Jeffries. So this this is a sort of, of 
uh, representation with little dots on, on a piece of paper and presumably the, 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 the distance of the dots from the centre? Absolutely. It shows the, the um, DNA that's common and the DNA that is so far apart that you couldn't possibly be related. So he's sitting right off there to Absolutely. the right. Absolutely, <laughs> he's right off there. Um, but what was really interesting was with the Revis family, it came back that basically they took DNA from, from the Revis family and it came back that they were actually of African descent. They originated originally from Mali. And as you can see from the photo, they look uh, very traditional white... Um, Yorkshire-based family who'd been in Yorkshire for quite a few generations, so it came as quite a surprise to them. Alec Jeffrey's works demonstrates that basically we all derive from, we carry the genes of our ancestors, we carry the DNA of all those people who've gone before us, and what happens is over time, some of that DNA remains stronger. But when you have a family that's been in Yorkshire for so many generations and you can see that they're from Mali originally, mm-hmm. I think it really does make you realise that the world is such a, an amazing wide place and people were moving around and migration happening much earlier than you previously thought. And also... So these, these ideas that people have had in the earlier parts of last century about racial purity, they were, they were all... Absolutely. Um, basically, what Alec Jeffries' work proves is that we are not pure. There is no such thing as a pure race. Everybody is a microcosm of all the people who've gone before them. But um, we've shown in this exhibition a blog by Nick Griffin, which basically, as soon as this research came out, um, the BMP wrote this blog saying this is terrible science, this is anti-British science, and claiming that obviously an eminent scientist didn't know what he was talking about, which is just nonsense. Okay, so, so if anybody's interested in visiting the exhibition, when can they come? We are open to the public for the exhibition on Tuesday to to Sunday um, from 10 o'clock till 6 o'clock, but we're open till 10 o'clock at night on Thursdays. And, and the gallery is very easy to find, isn't it? It is. It's very easy. We have Warren Street Tube Station and Euston Square Tube Stations just up the road, and uh, we're literally about 10 minutes' walk from Euston Main Line. I've been speaking to Jane Holmes, the uh, project manager for this exhibition at the Wellcome Collection in London. And if you'd like to visit the exhibition we've been talking about, then there are more details online at www.welcomecollection, that's all one word, and there are two L's in welcome, welcomecollection.org. So it's www.welcomecollection.org. And that, as usual, brings us to the end of another episode of Just Plain Sense. If you'd like to hear more, then the place to go is our website, podcast.plain-sense.co.uk. Join us again soon for another programme on a topic of equality and diversity. For now, it's goodbye and thank you for listening. Just Plain Sense is a Plain Sense Limited production. Mm